Okay, okay, okay. I'll try once more. You ever, you ever been there? I know you have. Maybe you're, I don't know, a four-year-old or a six-year-old. And you've fallen off your bike seven times in a row. But you say, oh, I'll, I'll tr okay, fine, I'll try one, one more time. Or maybe you're in school and you're trying to make friends, but just none of them work out. They're just, they're just not good friends. But there's one more person, one more person, and they're really, really nice. And so you decide, okay, okay, I'll try one more time. I'm going to go out of my comfort zone and try to make friends with that person. Or maybe you've seen five doctors, and they've, done, they've not been able to do anything. But you've got a friend who said, oh, you've got to try out this doctor. She is the best. And you don't really have a lot of hope, but you say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll try once more. Or maybe your marriage is struggling, and, and you've tried everything you think. You, you've, you've talked, you've read books, you've tried to write in journals together, and you say, okay, fine, we'll try one more thing. We'll go to pastor, and we'll get some counseling. By the way, there's no shame, none at all, in marriage counseling or any other type of counseling. Please, and, and um, this is not saying anything about myself, but don't let coming to me for counseling be the last resort. Make it, make it the first thing. Even before you're struggling at all, call me up. And whether it's that kind of counseling or any other kind of counseling, no shame, no shame at all. Make use of it earlier than you need to. If you're thinking, okay, one last thing I'll try, do counseling like three times ago. Or maybe, the last for instance, maybe you were fishing and you've caught nothing. But you think, oh, there's one more spot. One more spot. We'll throw out the line one more time and then we'll go home. Well, listen to this. When the disciples said, okay, we'll try once more. And Jesus made them a promise. It's in John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, the one in northern Israel. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were all together, so seven of them. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught Nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John who's writing this down, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, probably it was too hot to do the hard fishing work all night, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. 
When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's God's word. So I told you there were seven men. At least three of them, at least, had been professional fishermen before they were disciples. And they knew this lake, the Sea of Galilee, very well. They had fished it many times. They knew all the spots. They knew exactly the places to cast out their nets. They knew exactly how to pull them in. They knew how long to leave them under. They knew everything. Everything. Except that night, (laughs) they didn't know one thing. They didn't know what it was like to catch a single fish. All night long. Not a one. One of my good friends, he paid his way through college by fishing. Every summer, he'd go up to Alaska and work on a salmon fishing boat. And it was difficult work. It wasn't like this all the time, but but there were times where he'd work two days on, two days off, 20 hours a day, two days in a row. Very physical, very demanding work. Work for 20 hours, sleep for four, probably less than that, and then go work for 20 more. And I asked him, what would it have been like for you on that boat and your crew to fish all night long and not catch a single fish? And when I asked him, he just laughed. (laughs) He just laughed because that would be unthinkable. And he said, oh, it would have been absolutely terrible. The crew would be angry, whiny, complaining, and miserable. And he said, that's not even counting the fact that no fish means no money. Which raises the question, um, why, why were the disciples out there anyways? Like They were out there busting their tails all night long, throwing the nets out, bringing them in, and, and unlike him up in Alaska, they had no machinery, no hydraulics. It was hard, hard work. Why were they doing it? Some people surmise, maybe they were bored. And Jesus had told them, hey, go to Galilee, wait for me, I'll come up here to you. But that one doesn't really check out because you wouldn't fish all night long if you were bored. You'd go to bed at some point. Some people think, well, maybe they were just hungry or maybe they wanted to do it out of leisure. But same thing. After you don't catch a single thing for, I don't know how long. For me, it would be like 10 minutes, I'm I'm done. But like, I don't know, three hours? Like after it gets dark and you haven't caught a single thing, then do you go back in if you're just out for leisure? doesn't seem like they were out for leisure. More likely, they needed fish to sell. Because for the last three years when they were going around with Jesus, they had been supported. People took care of them. And now they weren't traveling around with Jesus anymore. So it was almost like they were between jobs. They they had nothing. And so they needed this. Which just, it, it upped the ante, it upped the frustration level. Like if you're having, if you're having a garage sale, 
and you're just kind of having it to declutter your house. And if you sell some stuff, great. But if not, you'll go and you'll donate it. Okay. Not a big deal if you don't sell anything. But if you're having a garage sale because you don't know if you're going to make your rent payment next month, and if you don't sell anything, you literally don't know what you're going to do, that adds a ton of stress. And when you don't sell anything or when you don't catch any fish, it adds to the frustration, maybe to the anger, maybe to the lashing out, maybe to the, just the broken-heartedness of it all. And at the end of the night, after these commercial fishermen who hadn't caught a single thing and probably needed to catch fish to sell and make money and get food, at the end of a whole night long, 12 hours, 14 hours, someone from the shore calls out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And my friend busted out laughing when he heard that too. Because he said that would be the exact worst thing you could possibly tell someone who hasn't caught fish. Like, excuse me, gentlemen, can I confirm to you that you are absolutely the most horrible fisherman? That's what it would have sounded like. Now, turns out it was Jesus saying that, but they didn't know that yet. They were 100 yards away. Be tough to make him out. Maybe it was hazy in the early morning light. And Jesus wasn't just making conversation. He wasn't interested in buying fish or getting food for himself. No, the sole purpose of Jesus asking the question was to get them to acknowledge no. He was shining a light on just how empty they were, how much failures they were. Think of it, commercial fishermen the whole night long. And not just not the usual haul, but zero, zero fish. Zero. And then Jesus, who's still a stranger to them, remember, he says, try once more. Try one more time. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And we all know the right side of the boat is way better than the left side, right? Throw it on the right side and then don't miss it. He gives a promise. You will find some. And now put yourself on the boat. All night long, you are dog tired. You're dead. You, you, you're so frustrated. You're confused because this has never happened before in your life. Not to you and you don't think to anyone else either. The Sea of Galilee is usually great fishing. And then this, this guy says that. And maybe they were thinking, maybe you're thinking, well, okay, like what, what, it can't get any worse. What's the worst? We, we try once more and then we still get no fish. So, okay, like, okay, we'll, we'll humor you, guy, and we'll throw it out. And when they did, when you did, if you're on the boat, imagine you were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish after 12 hours. And John's wheels are turning. And that's usually how it worked. Usually John, he understood first, and Peter acted first. And that's what happened here. Because John said to everyone, it's the Lord. And Peter, he acted first right away, and he had probably taken off his outer garment because it was hot and he was sweating all night long. But to go and stand before Jesus, he had to put on his clothes. So he grabbed his outer garment and just jumped into the water and made a beeline straight for Jesus. 
And now remember, you're, you're in the boat, and you're trailing behind, and you're, you can't even lift the nets into the boat. And so you head to shore, and, and you get there a little bit after Peter because he's swimming as fast, as fast as it possibly can. And you get to shore, and there's Jesus. And you hadn't caught a thing the whole night long. And then Jesus says to you, and he's got fish on the fire already somehow, and bread too. And Jesus says to you, hey, bring some fish. Almost as if to say, hey, uh, go take a look. Like, count them. Count how many fish I put in your nets after the whole night long when you guys caught zero. Bring some fish. And sometimes, sometimes that's what it takes, right? Sometimes it takes our efforts being denied, our knowledge being tapped out, and us just throwing up our hands and saying, I don't know, God. All our try-hard efforts being stymied for us to realize the truth that's been there all along. The world doesn't run on us. It runs on Jesus. Even our own lives, they don't run on us. They run on Jesus. And sometimes what it takes is a whole night of fishing and catching absolutely zero fish. Like, do you ever think, life should, life should just be going better than it is. I haven't messed up that bad. Or I'm better than this. Or I shouldn't be struggling in this way. I should have gotten over this thing a long time ago. This, it, it shouldn't be an issue anymore. We all think like that. And it's because we are, we are blinded by our own sense of self-sufficiency. And what Jesus is doing in this account is he is stripping away what seems to be the shiny veneer of our supposed self-sufficiency. He was showing the disciples that they were not sufficient in themselves, and he's showing us the very same thing. And then he puts a whole bunch of fish in your net after you've fished all night long and have caught nothing. And then he says, come, come and have breakfast. I've got it prepared for you. I've got your eternal breakfast all set for you for now and every day for the rest of your life here and beyond. And why do you think it was that, that he told the guys, bring some fish, count them up? Because they counted them because we found out there's 153. Why did he say that? Well, he said it for the same reason that this happens. If you're a kid or remember back to when you were a kid and something bad happened to you, you hurt yourself, something bad happened at school, and you went and maybe you told your mom what happened and then you just went and were sad in your room and your mom told your dad. So he knew exactly what happened. But he comes in the room and he says, what happened? Because there's some things in life that you can never know too well. He knew what happened to you, but he came and he asked you because he cares about you. And he could never know too well 
what happened to you. And, and you could never know too well that he cares about you. And you probably know that he knows that what happened, but he still asked you because he cares about you. And you can never know too well just how many fish Jesus has put in your net. He's got breakfast there on the shore, but he says, bring your fish. Count the fish. Count the blessings. Jesus is showing you that he's got your eternal breakfast, so to speak, all taken care of. The matter at the heart of all of this is trust. And trust makes you smile. Who doesn't love the concept of trust, right? It's a beautiful thing when one person trusts another. But here's the sucker punch right to your gut from Jesus. What he's saying here is, don't trust yourself. Don't trust yourself to be enough. And this might sound odd, but don't trust anyone else either. Don't trust your talents or your job or the government or your friends or your family. Don't trust them to be enough for you. Don't trust them. Do be thankful for them, but don't trust them. There's a difference. Don't trust your talents or, or your job. Be a good manager of your talents. Be thankful for them. Use them well to God's glory, but, but don't trust them. Don't trust your family or your friends, even the people closest to you, to be truly enough for you. Because here's the thing, they won't ever be. They will never be completely sufficient. Be thankful for them, treat them well, love them, be loved by them, but, but know that you don't need them in the greatest sense of a need. Because they can never be sufficient for you and you can never be sufficient in yourself. That is what Jesus showed the disciples and he shows us. Because if you fully trust someone else or yourself to be enough for you, then you're going to be like the disciples who are casting out their nets all night long and in the morning they're left with nothing. Which leads to stress and confusion and anger, and all sorts of those things. Count the fish. Count the blessings that God has given you. Be thankful for them. Recognize them. You can never know it well enough. All the provisions Jesus gives you and the never-ending grace that he gives you. But don't trust them to be enough for you. And then pull a Peter. And jump into the water and make a beeline straight for Jesus because he's just going to keep on providing what he knows that you need. That's what he was doing for the disciples. He didn't just appear to them one time after he rose from the dead to prove that he was alive. No, this was the third time. He kept on telling them, here, I am alive. I am with you. I really have taken away all your sins even though you abandoned me. Even though you don't deserve any of it, I have kept on loving you and I will. Your sufficiency lies in Jesus and nowhere else. Some of you know the name Trevor Lawrence. Quarterback for three years at Clemson University. Probably a week and a half from now, he's going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. He got into some heat this last week because of an interview he did 
And he said in the interview, I don't need football. And he took some heat for that because people thought, well, wait a minute, like, how, how is he going to win a bunch of Super Bowls if he doesn't have the drive of a, of a Michael Jordan? If he doesn't need to play this game? If he doesn't need to win? Is, is his work, like when the going gets tough, if, if he could just walk away, how is he going to be the quarterback that whoever the team is needs him to be? He's the best recruit, they say, in the last 10 years, the best prospect. In the last 40 years, they say he's top four. And yet he says, in a Sports Illustrated interview, I don't need football. His high school coach from Georgia said, yeah, Trevor, I think he could walk away from the game right now, never play again, and be all good. I think I know why. The article didn't say, and I wouldn't expect this from a, from a sports magazine, but I think I know why. Trevor Lawrence is a Christian. It's common knowledge. And I think I know why he doesn't need football. It's because he knows he's got what he needs. And it's not even his wife that he got married to last week. He knows that what he needs is Jesus. Because it's not his wife, it's not football, it's not winning, it's not finances that make him sufficient. He knows that for him, Jesus is sufficient. And it's the same exact thing for you. Jesus will always be on the shore, whether you catch 153 fish or you catch zero. He will always be standing there saying, come and have breakfast. I am and I have everything that you need. Amen.